0: And Julius Caesar was one of like the great authors. He did content that had been 2000 years later, he would have had a podcast. That's how important being able to communicate and get your message out is. If you want to get to the top and whatever you do, being able to communicate that to other people allows you to lead them and allows you to, to do more. Because Steve Jobs, right? Like the great product visionary of our era. And yet he still defined himself primarily by the people that he put around him. If you can have that one goal that you're pursuing no matter what, and you just don't get distracted at all, you never think about anything else except for pursuing that one goal, then there's a lot that you can accomplish, and you can pass up a lot of people who might be more talented than you.
1: All right, all right. Well, Ben, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you hopping on today.
0: Thanks for having me, Tim.
1: Yeah, and I know it's... uh... For you guys who don't know, Ben has his own podcast, which we're gonna jump right into it. And now it's for you—you're you're kind of on the other side of, of of talking versus talking to your own podcast. But your podcast is how to take over the world, and I would love to learn more about how you started your podcast because I think the idea is super interesting. I did a lot of research into like different people and times you talk about, but I'll, I'll leave it to you to explain.
0: Yeah, certainly. So, uh, you know, it started uh, four or five years ago, and the company I was working for just had sold. I was redundant, so now I was out of the company, and I was just at home kicking the sand, cooling my heels, figuring out what to do with my life, and I thought I would read a little bit and try and get some inspiration, and it started with, uh, so I was reading this book on Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, the one by Andrew Roberts, really good biography of Napoleon. At the same time, you know, I was getting in podcasts were already a thing, but I was listening a lot to the Tim Ferriss podcast and he just had a streak of like five or six shows in a row where I thought, you know, I'm not really interested in any of these people. And so I just kind of had the thought, well, who would I like to listen to Tim Ferriss interview? And I had this biography I was reading. I was like, you know, I would love it if Tim could interview Napoleon. And then I just thought I could do this. Why why can't I do that? And uh, so so that was kind of the genesis of the idea of my podcast was, what if Tim Ferriss could interview Napoleon, Caesar, Thomas Edison, like great inventors, businessmen, scientists, conquerors from history. And so that led to me starting How to Take Over the World, which is what it sounds like a little bit. It's it's biographies of famous people and kind of what we can learn from them. So I'm a few years deep now and and it's been a great process.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And so tell me about some of the your more popular biographies of, of people you've done, or, or maybe it's the most interesting to you. But I think there's there's so many out there. So obviously, if you guys are watching this and are curious, definitely go check out Ben's podcast. But you know, a lot of people who are hearing this for the first time, they're probably curious. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like when Ben is talking about some of these key historical figures?
0: Yeah, you know, asking me to pick my favorites is a little bit like asking someone to pick their favorite child, right? It's, it's, it's always hard to to cut any of them out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so to give people kind of a feel for what it's about, um, so for example, for Napoleon, I've actually done a couple episodes on him now, and it's not only I'll cover his life and I'll talk about his origins and the major battles he was a part of and how he reformed France and built the French empire and the wars that led to his rise, the wars that led to his fall. But I'll also talk about, for example, I read this book called Napoleon, how he did it, um, by, um, by one of his private secretaries, actually, this guy named Baron Fain. And so this guy was a private secretary of his and observed every day, exactly how he worked. And so it's a book all about just how he organizes his desk how he organizes his executive team, how he writes, how he dictates his letters, how he sends out commands, how he receives information, how he structures his day. So it's not just the biographical details, but it's also.
1: Wow. Wow. And so like, what were some of those peculiar things that, that you've picked or what are some, some interesting things that you didn't know about when, when doing research on Napoleon?
0: Well, there's a lot, like I just, like everyone, I didn't know anything about how he worked. Right. So I can tell you one thing that I actually changed about how I worked based on what he did. Yep. So one of those things was, I thought it was really interesting the way he dictated letters. So he was all about, you know, I have this huge empire that goes all the way to Northern Europe. to like the tip of Denmark, all the way down to Sicily in Southern Europe, all the way from Spain in the West to Russia in the East. Uh, You know, they had colonies in the Americas in, um, in Haiti and Louisiana and Quebec. And so he had this like vast empire, millions of people that he had to manage. And he was managing every aspect of it, the army, the Navy. Yes. The military, but also the schools, the roads. And he was like intimately involved in all of those details. And so he had to be hyper-efficient. So for example, this guy, Baron Fane talks about how he would pick up a letter and read the letter and then he would dictate a response and then he would let the letter drop from his hand. He wouldn't even take the effort to like crumple it up and throw it to the side because, uh, he just need to be as efficient as possible. So he just literally drops it, picks up a new one. And then later someone else comes in and picks it up. So, um, and he, he early in his career would write, but quickly he found there was too much to do. And so he stopped writing and he only dictated And he had secretaries that would cycle through because it was too much for one person to keep up with to be taking down his dictation all day. So I started thinking about this. I'm like, man, it's pretty powerful if you can just use voice dictation all the time. You can be much more efficient. And so what I started doing is when reading and taking notes for these podcast episodes, now instead of actually reading and writing down notes and highlighting stuff, I just set a recorder down. And it's voice activated. So if I say anything, it starts recording. And I just, if I read a quote I like, I just say it out loud. I just dictate it. Or if I have thoughts, I just speak them like I'm a crazy person speaking into the universe. And this recorder picks it up. And then I have it automatically uh, transcribed uh, through, through software. And so then I just have a perfect transcript of all the notes I take. And I don't have to take the time to actually write them down. I'm just... I'm just speaking and it's helped me be way more efficient in terms of reading and taking notes. So it's like little things like that, that I, that I've picked up on.
1: That's amazing. And, and the, the voice recorder, it doesn't start recording until you talk. So even if you pause for a little bit,
0: well, yeah, cause I'm pausing, you know, it'll be like 15, 20 minutes sometimes between notes. Right. So exactly. it's not recording that dead space. Yeah, Yeah.
1: yeah. Gotcha. That's amazing. Um, and so what's your, your process to prep for specific people that, that you want to research? Cause I know that I'm sure that a ton goes into that because some of your episodes, you have part one, part two, part three, part four of, of studying people. And I'm sure sometimes you may not be easily, you can't just easily find research on, on certain people as well. So,
0: yeah, I mean, most of the people I cover tend to be major figures um, I've only done one or two that you could in any way, um, consider niche. Um, I, so, so my process is essentially I'll read a biography and then I always want to read a second biography cause I want to triangulate my own opinion, if that makes sense. So I read two biographies so that if there's any dispute, Uh, or if there's any just like kind of different way to think about this person, I'm kind of getting it from two sides so that I feel like on a certain level, I'm starting to develop a unique perspective and not just digesting what someone else thought about this person. So two biographies. Then I also try and read a third book usually on um, like the time period or the area, like something that gives me more context for the world around them and what was happening and major kind of changes in technology, politics, um, whatever. And then I kind of look and see if there's any gaps, anything I want to know that I don't know yet. And if that's the case, then I just warm up my Google fingers and start looking for research and try and find answers to those specific individual questions. So the whole time that I'm doing that again, I'm just kind of speaking out these notes and, and then I have them all transcribed at the end and I dump them into one big doc. And then my process from there is, I read through those notes live and record myself once again, record myself read, you know, listening to or looking at my own notes. And then as I'm looking at them, I'm kind of saying what I find interesting and I'm kind of starting to think about how I'm going to script this. And so from that, that basically turns into a rough draft of a script. So I hand that off. I have an editor who does a little bit of editing on that to fix it up. Then I'll give it a pass. And then I've basically got a, a script that I can record.
1: Wow. So your first draft is basically you just talking about your notes and thoughts as you, as you see it.
0: That's right. And then I read that first draft for my second draft.
1: Amazing. Amazing. And your editor will help formulate first between the first and second draft and make things more structured or organized or more, uh, more smooth, essentially. That's right.
0: In certain times, you know, I'll be calling stuff out. I'll say, Hey, you know, um, oh, this is interesting. Da da, da, da I love this quote. This actually would go better two sections earlier. So let's, let's put that there and getting a little bit of instruction stuff. I like got that, it. Yeah.
1: Got it. That's amazing. I think that process is spot on. So I know you've covered quite, you've covered some, some people that I, I was like, wow, I'm interested in learning more about this person. So I think one very interesting person.
0: The first is, um, you know, and they might do crazy things, right? And so on a certain level, uh, now he did have a lot to lose because he, you know, by the time he gets into the Civil War, which is like the climactic battle of his life for control of Rome, he's obviously accumulated a lot of wealth and um, a lot of possessions and a lot of power. But at the same time, you know, there's this famous story where they're coming back from a certain war and they're going through this little mountain village where um, it's really, really poverty stricken and poor and nothing going on. And Rome is the predominant city in the world at the time. And so some people are making fun of this little village in in his army and he silences them and he says, I would rather be the first man, I'd rather be the most powerful man in this village than the second man in Rome, okay? Now, like we hear that, and we're like, oh, Caesar, but like just think about that. I want you to think about how insane of a person you would have to be for us to be walking, like <laughs> this is like the third world Tim, right? Like you and me, Tim, we're walking through like some bombed out village in, in Syria, right? That has just been through a civil war. And I'm like, man, it sucks for the people that live here. And you're like, yeah, but I would rather be The top G, I'd rather be like the top guy in this little bombed out village in Syria than the number two person in New York City, right? You're an insane person if you believe that. And that's, he was an insane person, right? Like he just had to win. He was compulsive. So that was one takeaway from the life of Julius Caesar. Um, I think the other thing that goes along with that a little bit is he wins this war. And the way that he behaves is kind of interesting because there's been civil wars in for a few years in Rome at this point and one side will win and they go and once they win they kill all their enemies and they take all their stuff and they're the victors for a while and then a few years later tensions flare up and the other side might win this time and they kill all their enemies and they take all their stuff and there's all these recriminations that happen after these civil wars and That's kind of what everyone expects. And Julius Caesar immediately is just like, that's not happening this time. It's not happening this time. Um, There are going to be no recriminations. And um, you're not going to kill anyone. You're not going to take their stuff. Now, on the one hand, that might seem noble, right? It might seem nice. But he wasn't being nice. It was that he actually had more ambition than the people that came before him. So the ambition of the people before him was, you know, I'm was, i coming into this in order to win, in order to protect myself, in order to make sure my people, like, come out well. Julius Caesar was saying, I own Rome. Like, you're not taking stuff out on the other side because I own them too. Like, this is actually all my stuff. And so, like, we're not going to damage that stuff. You're not going to horse around in my family room. I own Rome. And so, like, just taking that ownership attitude of, like, Actually, we're not gonna have any recriminations because, like, this is all my stuff. I think is um, is really smart. And so, like, increase the scope of your ambitions and um, and tr- truly take ownership rather than like just taking revenge and ha- having these like little petty yeah. victories. And it's almost
1: comparable to like thinking long term, right? The right. Uh, the story you just presented; it's people are thinking very short term. Let me just conquer the city. You know, I, I prove that I'm I'm strong. I'm the best person. And then, boom. You know, you you burn everything. Versus, he took the long term approach, which is this is part of me building a, a massive army and empire. Right.
0: And I think the third thing I would I would highlight is most people know Caesar as a conqueror. What many people don't know is that when he was doing his first big campaign in Gaul, he was writing these dispatches back to Rome and saying, kind of talking about the victories that he won and the stuff that he was seeing because this is a very foreign country that mostly most Romans had never been to. And this was actually like the top selling literature of his time.
1: That's amazing. So he, he was a great publisher and author back, back then one of the most prominent ones. See, these are things that you don't know about if you don't do it, but I I love how you explain it in terms of translating it back to present time. And I I also don't want to cap you at three. If there's other things that, that, you've taken away from, from his biography and, and how it relates back to present time. I think this is a very interesting uh, topic that, that we're on. Um, no, I mean,
0: the, the other thing that is just interesting about Caesar that is interesting about all these people that I just find so interesting was he loved to host and have these big feasts because that was what you did back then, right? That was a big part of demonstrating that you had money, that you were powerful, that you could be a patron of others, but he would hardly eat at these feasts. You know, everyone always observed like, oh, Caesar, how come you, you have this big elaborate feast and yet you yourself are kind of barely eating? And it was because his mind was just always on conquest, getting to the top. He was obsessed, right? And so you see this a lot that like, Napoleon was a super light eater and he has this famous quote where he says, if you want to eat poorly, eat with Lebrun. It's one of his kind of lieutenants. If you want to eat well, eat with Compasaris. That's another one of his lieutenants. But if you want to eat quickly, eat with me. Cause he would just eat for 10 minutes and then like he was back on to work. Right. And, um, Joan of Arc was a super light eater. Steve Jobs, of course, was no, he did go on like fruitarian and apple only diets. He was like a super light eater. He was a vegan his entire life. Leonardo da Vinci was a vegan. It's so like all these guys eat super light because they're obsessed. And so just food is getting in the way, right? And they're like, what's the least amount I can eat to fuel me? And then like get back to what I'm obsessed with doing.
1: So, so I know you also did Steve Jobs as well. And Steve Jobs is, you know, obviously someone, a lot more people who are listening are more familiar with in terms of. Relevancy of time frame as well, being able to grow up in that that era. What what would you say were a few things that you learned about Steve Jobs that was basically that you're like, wow, that makes sense. Why he got to to where he was.
0: Yeah, I think so. I just read a new book on Steve Jobs called um, "Make Something Wonderful." Steve Jobs in his own words. So Steve Jobs Archive. They just went back and they took everything they could find of Steve in his own voice. So that was like magazine, TV interviews, emails that he had sent, uh, presentations he had been given, memos he had written, anything they could find of Steve in his own words, and they just compiled it into a book. So it's just like all Steve just talking. And there was some interesting stuff that I came away with. One is kind of how he defines the job of a top leader, of a CEO. So he says that, um, and then setting that vision and, and helping them achieve that. So he didn't give himself a lot of the credit uh, for that. So I thought that was like a really good, concise way to think about leadership. I was just like, oh, okay, checklist. Do I have the right people around me? Have I set the vision for them? And am I doing a good job of pushing them towards achieving that vision? The other thing was he was really good about accountability. And it was interesting the way that he did accountability because – often they were not like set metrics. He didn't spend a long time thinking about the goals, you know, and like, how do we precisely define these goals? So you'd see the goals all the time would be like, uh, you know, he'd be the head of Pixar. And one of the goals would be like, um, make sure that there's like a ton of press about a bug's life when it comes out. It's like, how do you define that? And yet the fact that they don't spend a lot of time thinking about like, oh, well, how do we define that? And what's the measurements? Like, who cares, man? We all know if we're doing it or not, right? And then he follows up a year later and is like, look, he didn't, again, once again, did not cite any particular metrics, but he was like, look, this was the number one performing uh, movie in the country. You know, it was on the second page of the New York Times, its review. They were effusive about it. Like, clearly this press initiative worked. And so that to me was
1: yeah, see he's he's painted as a big product visionary but yet the number one thing from 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 your research is recruiting people. So.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think um for Steve another thing that uh blew me away in this uh latest reread uh, th- through his life was um you know I think he grew up in the sixties, you know, at a time when people were really, really idealistic. And so he had these really strong ideals and he was an artist at heart and he believed that things should be really beautiful. And I just see a lot of that idealism being lost. You know, even when I was growing up, there was this feeling of selling out and there was a difference between selling out and doing things for money and not selling out and doing things for pure artistic purposes and love and whatever else. And it seems like that's gone. No one talks about selling out anymore. Like everyone's attitude is, ah, well, you know, make some money if you can, whatever. And so I think that idealism is really important and something that people should focus on recapturing. Another thing that stood out to me about Steve jobs was this was someone who was a master master communicator. Um, just like Caesar was right. So he has all these great analogies and there's some that everyone knows. So like when the original iPod comes out, he says, uh, it's a thousand songs in your pocket. Okay. It's just a great analogy, great way to think about what an iPod is and how it will improve your life. Another one he's famous for is a bicycle of the mind. So he says, you know, if you look at what animals are most efficient in terms of how they move, humans are not very efficient. Um, in terms of calories spent per mile moved. It turns out birds are the most efficient. Humans are kind of somewhere in the middle. But if you put a human on the bicycle, all of a sudden humans on bikes do become the most efficient animal in terms of mile, miles moved per calorie spent. And he said, personal computers are like a bicycle for the mind. They just make you you make your mind go so much further. You can do so much more. It enhances the powers of your mind. To, to make you more efficient. I thought that's like a beautiful analogy for the 70s and people don't even know what a computer is or why you would need one. Um, it's really smart. I also uncovered some other analogies that I had never heard. So one of them, he talks about, um, someone asks him um, why he cares so much about the design of his computers, of like the box that they're in, how they're presented. And he says... Um, most Americans don't own a computer. Again, this is like the 70s, early 80s. And he said, in 25 years, all of them will. But right now, Americans are on a first date with computers. And so in the same way that you would want to dress up for a first date, we need to dress these up in a certain way to present a certain image so that we can develop a certain relationship with people going forward. And I thought that was like such a clever way, the idea of a first date to present what was happening between the relationship between America and computers at the time. Um, And he had another of of other ones. I'll I'll tell you one other one, which was he talks about he he was also a student of history. He knew history super well. And he talked about the development of the telegram telegraph and how at first people thought, oh, this is great. Everyone's going to need a telegraph on their desk so that you can tap messages to people you know. And he said, but the problem was that required everyone to learn Morse code. It only takes about 30 hours to learn Morse code. You could learn it in a week if that's all you did. But most people just weren't going to do that. And he said, uh so the real innovation was telephones because telephones you could just pick up and and speak and you didn't have to learn anything new. And he said the great thing about telephones is not only could you speak, you could sing. You could add flavor and intonation and art into what you were saying. And then he says, IBMs are telegraphs of our age. They require you to learn programming. Uh, They require you to learn this new language in order to communicate with others. And the Macintosh is the telephone. Because you don't have to learn anything new. You can just point and click and you can communicate and do new things. And not only that, but you can sing. You can use different fonts. You can create things actually creatively and put your personality into it. I thought that was just like such an amazing way to express the difference between Macintoshes and IBMs at the time. So that's one of the big things I'm learning from Steve Jobs is just use analogy to take something abstract and put it in a way that people will understand and connect with.
1: I really, really like that because I think when you're, especially for Steve, ahead of his time, right most people won't be able to grasp what he's thinking about, or can't even envision it. But I think once you make an analogy to something present that most people understand, it makes it a lot more relatable and, and easier to to understand. Totally. So that's that's great. So I know another person you interviewed with, or that you did a ton of research on, was Vladimir Putin. Which there's he is obviously in his, his own island, and he. he arguably i think might be one of if not the richest person in the world like i think the richest people in the world aren't really on these forbes uh 400 lists they're nobody knows their net worth so i would love to learn more about what what your takeaways were were vladimir putin because he's almost on the other side where you don't necessarily he's not like a prominent he's prominent but he's not like a steve jobs where it's it's inspiring, but he's yet still very successful at what he does, yet it's very polarizing.
0: I think for me, the big takeaway from Vladimir Putin, and obviously I'm going to set aside kind of a lot of stuff, obviously he's an extremely controversial figure right now, understandably, and uh, you know, it's not a politics show, so I don't like to dive into any of that. I actually was going to kind of restart the Putin series and talk about more of what has happened but then it's just impossible to kind of get into some of these more recent happenings without making people upset one way or another. So I decided to kind of abandon it. Um, yep. But you know, for me, the interesting thing about Putin was he's coming up through uh, the Russian civil service. At first, he's coming up through the KGB and then the KGB kind of comes to an end. And so he's gets in with the mayor's office of, uh, of St. Petersburg and then the mayor loses his reelection this guy Sobchak and it's interesting because he comes to this crossroads when the mayor he was looking for working for loses and he didn't know what to do with his life because he'd been fired he wasn't really going anywhere he wasn't like a on a meteoric rise no one was like oh this Putin guy watch out for him like whatever he was just kind of doing his thing just kind of being a, a mid-level functionary and so You know, he's out of a job at age 40, or maybe he's like 45. I think it's 40. And he says, all right, well, maybe I'll start a judo gym. That's what he was going to do. And then he happens to get this low-level job in Moscow for the federal government over there. And his rise kind of starts again. And so it's interesting to me to think about, all right, so this is not, in my mind, someone that was destined for greatness. I'm not even trying to talk bad about him. I'm not saying he's stupid or anything. But I don't, he's not a genius, at the very least, I think we can say about him. He's not a genius. He's smart. He is a smart guy. Of course, he's smart to do what he's done. He's smart, but he's not a genius. Um, What has enabled that rise has just been this extreme commitment to one purpose, right? And especially at a time, you know, you get into the 90s, and it really feels like the Soviet Union ends, Russia's in a really bad state. People are looting it. You know, I have these, all of these oligarchs that are coming on and just stripping the country for parts and really just robbing people blind. And, um, he had an opportunity to get in on some of that. He did get in on some of that, but at the same time he had just this like real firm commitment to the Russian state. And, um, the fact that he just stayed committed to that stayed on message and just pursued single-mindedly one single goal allowed him to rise past a lot of people who might've been smarter, who might've been more charismatic, who uh, might've had more connections, whatever. I think a lot of people can learn from that, that
1: interesting, the power of focus, really? Yeah, that's right. So even in his forties, even when basically he had to restart from quote unquote scratch, then he just was very focused on, on, on moving up in Russia and in the government and really, you know, getting to where he is today. So,
0: yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I tried to choose my words carefully. Like, I wouldn't say that this is some, like a bleeding heart. Someone who's like, no, I just want to serve the Russian people. No, he's a KGB yep. man. Like he loved the Russian state. Yep. He loved the idea of like Mother Russia, right? And so he just was yep. always faithful to that that idea, and that's what took him where where he got.
1: Got it. That's amazing. See, it's it's focused. I think there's there's just learning lessons from everyone, you know, and and I think so that, that I guess that brings me to my next question is what would you say were a few universal factors or traits that you saw that basically all if not most of these prominent figures had?
0: So that's like probably the most important thing is just having, knowing what's most important and focusing on it and blocking out everything else. Um, other things, like after focus, I would say vision. That's what all these people did is they established a vision. And, you know, you think about Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and Steve Wozniak is the engineering genius. He's the one who actually built the Apple II. He's the one who could actually do the stuff. And yet when Steve Jobs leaves, Steve Wozniak sticks around to Apple, it really flounders. And then when Steve Jobs comes back, Wozniak is gone and yet he's able to resurrect it. And it's like, whoa, how is that possible that Steve Jobs is more important to the company than Steve Wozniak when he can't build a computer? And it's because f- vision is the most important thing. Um, and so he had that vision. So first, I would say focus. Second, I would say vision. Um, third, I would say um, courage, like Another thing, you know, Napoleon says um, that like calm, calm under duress is essentially the most important uh, attribute in an officer. And I think that's true. There are a lot of people who are able to have a vision and are able to march steadily towards it. And then when something happens, it's harder. You know, Mike Tyson says everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And it's true. Like having that discipline of, oh, my gosh, I just got punched in the face. This hurts. This sucks. But I'm going to stay focused and I'm going to stick to the plan. That is what separates people. You think about a lot of investors. That's true. Like there are a lot of people who are good investors until a recession and things start going wrong and then they panic and they do the wrong thing Uh, or until things start going great and then they get greedy and they abandon their principles, right? And they uh and like maybe they deploy all their capital when they know they shouldn't or and they stop preparing for for bad times in the future or whatever. Um, so it's like when something happens that would knock other people off of their plan, that's kind of what separates the greats from from those who who aren't great. Um, yeah, so those are some of the top lessons I've learned. Got it
1: it It's so interesting you say that because even I think in today's day and age when you see people who are successful, the same principles apply right You have to be focused, especially now more than ever. there's so many things that are distracting us. you might have one business idea, you might be getting traction there, and next thing you know you have another business opportunity or you have this thing and you can't decide but but i'm i'm uh as I get deeper into business myself, all of these these things that you just brought up are are extremely crucial.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think another thing that just comes to mind as you're talking was taking ownership and figuring stuff out no matter what. This is a great story. I love about the Rothschilds that they set up these five banks all over Europe in Germany, Italy, England, France, and Austria. And they all communicate and they all trade back and forth. And that was one of their advantages is they now have information information where no one else has it. This is the 1800s because they have these branches of their bank everywhere, right? And then um, there's a war and they find that their branches of, of these banks are on different sides of the war. And this is the Napoleonic Wars. And none of that, but there's a lot of suspicion of them because they're Jews. And so people say like, okay, are you guys really, you know, on our side? You guys are whatever. And so their main bank in Germany all their mail is being stopped and being checked. Um, The the government decides they want to read all their mail and they're going to hold it for 24 hours to, to make sure that they're not like spying essentially. But this is a problem because a big part of their business relies on this quick passing of information. So for example, there might be a certain currency that is selling for more money in one location than another. And so they're communicating all this stuff and they're saying, oh, we can buy the British pound for only this amount in Austria, buy, buy British pounds because then you can move them here and I can, I can sell them for more money, right? So uh, th- this communication was really important. It had to be timely, right? Because they're doing a lot of currency transactions, doing a lot of arbitrage, which needs to happen right now. And so um, this 24 hour thing is just killing them uh it, it completely removes all their alpha it removes their competitive advantage, and so what they start doing is they come up with a code for the envelopes, and so they say, all right, if there's red stripes on the outside of the envelope we're not going to be able to communicate anything else to you, but it means buy pounds right, or if it's like green stripes, then it means buy failures uh you know all these all these different currents buy deutsche marks, sell deutsche marks, whatever. And so that way they can just go to the post office, see the letters that are coming for them. They don't even have to open them and read the information. They just know actionably what they should do based on that information. They'll get the letter a day later and find out the background. And so I love that story of just like, look, this is the biggest obstacle in the world. It should just completely kill your business. And instead you just say, you know what? Somehow I'm going to hack together a way to make this work. And so I think that persistence of, I take ownership and it really doesn't matter what else happens. I'm going to find a way is another key.
1: Yeah. I, I, it's, it's the little things it's, it's what's going to, what's going to stop you. Right. Totally. So there's another person I wanted to ask you on. Oh, Walt Disney. Walt Disney. I, I think is a, is a very interesting one because I remember even reading multiple threads and, and, on Walt Disney. And I, I think I even saw like an early day business plan where he mapped out Disney before it became Disney. But would love to learn more about what, what your takeaways were when, when learning a lot about him.
0: You know, similar to Steve jobs, Walt Disney was not he, similar to Steve jobs, you know, Steve could program a little bit, whatever he knew, he knew hardware and he knew software and he could dabble, but he wasn't the gr- world's greatest engineer. Similarly, Walt could draw and Walt did draw, initially. But he wasn't the world's greatest artist and he similarly partnered with this guy Ub Iwerks who was this incredible artist and kind of powered him through his first iteration of Disney. And once again is like, "Okay, well, what do you do, Walt? You're not the world's greatest salesman. You can sell a little bit. He was not bad at sales. He's pretty good at sales, but wasn't the world's greatest salesman. He wasn't even Disney's greatest salesman. He wasn't Disney's greatest artist." He wasn't, he's their greatest writer. He wasn't actually writing the scripts. And once again, it comes back to this, uh, actually it turns out leadership really matters and setting that vision. And that's what Walt Disney did. Another big takeaway for me that I found really interesting was actually he has big success, which is Snow White. That's like the biggest movie ever. Incredible. And they have a couple follow-ups that do okay. And then, um, World War Two hits and actually like a lot of they have this big uh, labor strike and it creates really bad feelings and that's horrible for Disney. And then World War Two happens and um, Disney kind of goes on pause because there's no consumer market because all the men are off in Europe or or Asia fighting World War Two. And also a lot of their corporate resources get used up helping to assist in World War Two. So they are helping make instructional videos for American soldiers, things like that. And so... It kind of goes on hiatus, Disney Studios. And when they come back, Walt is like not motivated anymore. It's kind of like the fun was all gone out of of Disney Studios for him. And so he's kind of wandering in the desert for a while. And then what happens is he becomes obsessed with toy trains and he loves just like building toy trains. And so he actually moves into a new house with a bigger yard so that he can build this almost life-size toy train in his backyard. It's like two and a half feet tall and you can kind of ride around on the top of the train. And at Disney Studios, he takes over like a big warehouse room to build these like enormous train tracks with these big toy villages. And at first people are like, Walt, this is crazy, dude. (laughs) Like, What are you doing? Uh, You've got a studio to run. Let's try and turn this thing around. And you're playing with toy trains. And then, you know, after taking over the studio, he thinks, well, what if we built it even bigger? What if we built it like half scale and you could walk through this entire thing? And he's like, no, no, no. What if we just built it full scale? And then that evolves and becomes Disneyland. And Disneyland is what becomes the next big success and kind of reignites and reinvigorates Disney. It makes it attractive place to work. Once again, kind of reignites their film studio as well. And so to me, that's an example of this is someone who followed his obsession even when it seemed crazy to everyone else. And that was one thing I learned is sometimes you kind of just have to go down with the ship. Like you got to do what you believe in and what you're obsessed with, even if it seems like it doesn't make a ton of sense to be working on at the time.
1: Yeah. It's, I really like the part where someone loses interest because I don't think people understand how hard it is to stay focused on one thing, right? Like even like Michael Jordan, for example, at a certain point, he stopped playing basketball and joined the MLB, right, for a little bit. So sometimes you just lose it, but I think as long as you've, you've, you follow that obsession, like you said, and, and what your gut's telling you, eventually it will lead you down the right path. Well, I
0: think Michael Jordan is like a perfect example, right? Because anyone on the outside would say, hey, this two-year baseball intermission was totally not worth it. You wasted two years of your prime. And... I think that makes a little bit of sense, but I think that's what made Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, right? Is that this is someone who was completely consumed with what he did. And when basketball didn't consume him anymore, he wasn't going to do it. You know, he went and did baseball, which was obsessing him at the time. And so if he hadn't been the type of person who's going to say, even though I'm at the top, I'm going to leave basketball for two years to do exactly what I want to do, then he wouldn't have been Michael Jordan. So you just got to believe in yourself and do things even when they seem, seem crazy.
1: Absolutely. So what's your goal with this podcast?
0: Um, right now my goal is to grow it. I want to make it one of the biggest podcasts in the world. I want to make it the biggest history podcast in the world and then we'll see.
1: Amazing. And I think you've, you've already covered such amazing topics and hopefully for anyone listening, just hearing some of these stories will, will, Get a lot of people excited to really learn deep in terms of of the notes and and research you're putting in for for these topics. But I think you have an amazing niche. When I when I first did research on your podcast, I was like, wow. I've I've been curious about it, but I don't want to go do the research and read all <laughs> these books and and like figure out what's what's unique about each person. But I think, hey, if if someone wants to, I think listening to your podcast is is that great way to do it. So
0: thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I think about it is, um, there's this principle that Sean Puri talks about, which is hard to play, easy to win, easy to play, hard to win. In other words, it's really difficult to be the best sprinter in the world because everyone runs really easy to play. Right. And so we can be pretty confident that Usain Bolt is or was the fastest man in the world. Because if, if he wasn't, we would have found out someone else would have sprinted. If that makes sense. Whereas if you're the best pickleball in the player, if you're the best pickleball player in the world, yeah, that was much easier to do, frankly, than what you Bolt did because it's just less, less people play. So I take that approach to podcasting, which is look, if you want to do a podcast about comedy and MMA, then you better be funnier and more engaging than Joe Rogan. That's it. Like, And maybe you are, and if you are, then go for it. But if you're not, that's what you're going up against because it's easy to play and people are already in that space. And so for me, I'm like, I don't think I'm that funny. I don't think I'm like that charismatic or engaging. So I'm going to do something that's really hard, which is do a scripted podcast with a ton of research that just like is hard to do and not many people are going to go to the effort. And therefore, I, I think I can get to the top and be the best in this category. So that's how I think about it.
1: Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking time to share more about your podcast, more about your learnings from, from researching very prominent figures in our past. And, and I hope, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to be a, an avid listener and just learning more because I think even some of the things you were talking about for, for Julius Caesar, I think really, really interested me. So.
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I feel, I feel Tim
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, cool, Cool, man. Well, thank you so much.